This episode you are about to enjoy is a previously recorded episode from The Unfiltered Historian. And good evening, everybody. Welcome to the first installment of the Unfiltered Author Talks. I'd like to welcome Chris Bryan. You're the first one to come on this installment, man. Hopefully first of many. Just really excited to welcome you on for the first one. Well, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So I got to um, have the opportunity to read your book so far, and it, I love it. And I'm really, really excited for that to come out. And I hope many of you guys watching at home are as well, as you've seen um, a lot of postings about it from Savage Beatty, who always posts some just wonderful books. So I'm really glad to see you up there with the repertoire of this awesome material coming out in 2022. Um, but if you'd like to start off just by introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about yourself and what led you to want to write about the 12th core, and then we can dive into the fun stuff. So All right. I'll give you the floor. Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm from... Uh... Uh, originally from Franklin County, PA, kind of surrounded by a lot of the this history. And um, let's see. So I, um, after college, I was a Navy pilot for eight years and um, did uh, a couple of master's degrees after that, um, uh, one of them in historic preservation. And uh, you know, before that, that last master's degree, I, I uh, <laughs> decided I had a little extra time on my hands. So I would uh, learn as much as I, that I as I could about Antietam. Uh, I did that. It seemed like there was uh, enough of a gap in the historiography uh, surrounding uh, the two brigades with Green at, at Antietam to to write a book. So I uh, I had a year before I was going to school. I, I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, I have plenty of time to research and write a, a book. And here I am six years later with uh, uh, <laughs> finally getting published. Um, it awesome. went, most of that time was me working on it. But uh, but yeah, so a little bit of hubris, I guess. There you go. Um, but uh, you know, and the, the scope of the thing sort of expanded because that, like originally I was, uh, I was looking at Green's attack through the East woods and over to the, the, toward the Dunker church and that, that whole episode. And that, that's originally all I had in mind. Mm -hmm. And then it, it's you know, over a little bit of time, I, I realized, well, you know, Gordon's brigade there over the cornfield, sort of the, um, the anvil on which Green's uh, attacks landing and so that hammers landing and that really needs to be included and and now I'm at three uh, three fifths of the the core really needs to be a core study uh, mm -hmm. and, and then eventually I got to the point of of saying well um, you, you know I learned a bit about Cedar Mountain as well and realized well that that's really the the story that needs to be told because it it goes from 
you know, that, that whole experience from Cedar Mountain through, uh, you know, the second Manassas campaign juxtaposes really well with their experience and, um, uh, at Antietam. So, um, it, it got big really fast to the, uh, yeah. the scope. I think it's cool that you went with a core study too. Cause I mean, I'm sure that must, you know, from writing like, you know, from regimental to individual soldier up to the core level, I mean, that must've been difficult for research to take, to try and just come up with all this material to start a core study. And you're coming, you know, not just one battle with a core either. It looks like you're breaking it down to quite a few battles in the book there. And I think that's really, you know, admirable to do. Cause that's a lot of work for a book. And I mean, tell us a little bit about the research process. Like, did you just kind of come up with, the idea to go, you know, from Cedar Mountain to Antietam, did it start, you know, like you said, it started sort of in the Eastwoods. Like what led you to really want to cover all of the uh, aspects of the 12th Corps from Cedar Mountain to Antietam? Well, you know, like I was saying, the, you know, it didn't seem right. I, I got to a certain point thinking, well, I, I'm only covering part of this, this core. So, you know, it, mm-hmm. um, as it would make sense to cover the whole unit. Now, what I ended up doing was, um, you know, much of the narratives at the brigade and regimental level, um, more so than, you know, division core level, although I, I cover that, I, you know, I put context uh, for, you know, the whole operational picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, but to your point, yeah, that it's a lot of uh, really researching each regiment and uh, eventually figuring out what, what parts of, of that narrative are, uh, you know, kind of stand out. And so it, uh, yeah, there's a lot of research. Sure. No, <laughs> and, I can uh, only imagine. Yeah. And I mean, it, yeah. So trying to decide exactly, uh, what, what portion of that to, to include, because, uh, I mean, it could grow fast all of a sudden. Sure. So of course we got to throw the big C word COVID in here. What was it like writing a book during COVID, especially with the, you know, the amount of research you were doing? I'm, I'm sure there was some, you know, struggles with that at least. Cause it's, you know, a lot of the stuff is digitized today too, but you know, many aspects of writing a book does involve some travel to some of these libraries or archival places. Did that really hamper in the writing process and the research process? So no, because really, um, yeah, I mean, the, the manuscript was done. Uh, I mean, I was still okay. going over it, but you know, by, by the time COVID hit, that was all set. Now what it did do is, um, you know, supply chain and all, mm-hmm. all manner of other things. So it sort of slowed the, the publishing process down a little bit. Um, now, you know, any other research projects that I'm doing right now. Yes. I'm, uh, you know, I, I have not made it to an archive yet. Yeah, uh, no, and I think there's some open. I, I just haven't, uh, haven't done that uh, yet, but I, I know uh, of some where I can't get in yet. So that's I understand. Fine. I know I've had trouble. I uh, finally get the, uh, the motivation to try and I have an ancestor who has a uh, diary, about 116 pages worth of that down there at the Virginia historical society. I think that's even going name change as well now, but uh, I can't, for the life of me get down there to get it. And I'm just like, man, this, this thing is sitting right there. It's stone's throw away with all that stuff I can get into. But because of COVID, I can't get down there to be able to sit and spend time with it. Yes, yeah, that's just absolutely frustrating. And I, like I said, I can only imagine for your research projects now, it's just what that's like. Yeah. And I mean, I was already gonna, <clears throat> I was already going to be doing some, uh, some remote, you know, uh, asking them to, to make reproductions and send it. And I, in fact, I was looking over some third Wisconsin stuff this morning um, Ooh. based on that. So, okay. So out of your research, do you have a favorite regiment that you came across? If the one stand out the most um, out of the 12th Corps? Well, I mean, let's put it this way. I, I guess there are, there are a handful that, that stand out as, as good, you know, effective regiments. Third um, uh, Wisconsin, is is a really good one. Second Massachusetts, twenty um, eighth and one hundred eleventh Pennsylvania are both really good. Um, if if I had to choose, it'd probably be those four. Um, now, I, I guess I I might say that the the second Massachusetts is my favorite, and the reason for that is because uh, it's um, the the folks in that regiment were uh, well written. They mm-hmm. they did a lot of of correspondence, and they um, and it's usually pretty entertaining writing. Um, uh, you know, you, you read the book, like uh, Captain Richard Carey is one of those guys. Um, his his kind of wit and sarcasm are, are just outstanding. Um, so some of the things he writes about, say, Nathaniel Banks are, are really entertaining. <laughs> uh, but, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. 
Now, uh, I know uh, Tim isn't here yet. He could very well pop in at some point, but I want to just at least ask this just in case he doesn't have the opportunity to pop in. He is a big 10th main fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done a few videos at Antietam about the 10th main there. Uh, did you find them very interesting too when you were going? Because I know there were some parts I really enjoyed uh, about the 10th main in your book as well. Uh, did you find a lot of stuff on the 10th main? Was it you know new to you? Did, it, you, know, did you know some of this going into it already? Or Yeah, I mean... Um... They, they figure prominently because, I mean, you have a good narrative uh, on that regiment from, from Gould. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, the sources on Antietam uh, are, are really great just in general. And uh, they're due to Ezra Carmen and, and uh, John Mead Gould. Uh, Gould's a, a member of the 10th Maine. Um, and so he was corresponding with, with all these folks and... Um, uh, throughout that that portion of the battlefield, in order to figure out who, what, when, where uh, happened at, at Antietam, so of course, um, you know the the correspondence from his own regiment is is significant. Um, that helped a lot, and actually, it just uh, reminded me that uh, there was a, a COVID impact. Um, okay, I uh, you know Nick Paserno is a, a kind of expert on the the tenth Maine. He's got all kinds of um, great sources and he, and I, he, he offered for, for me to come have a, have a look at, at what he had, but with COVID going on, I wanted to uh, wave off. And that, that was a, a recent um, thing that happened, but he's got great sources. Uh, cool. a lot of great members, um, so. And uh, Wayne Blatner over here on Facebook says that he had an ancestor in the 128th Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah. yeah they had cool. a, they had a kind of a hard day at, at Antietam. You know, they they got thrown in. Um, the, you know, the colonel and the uh, lieutenant colonel. Uh, one was killed. The other one was uh, wounded pretty badly uh, right at the outset. And so um, things sort of unraveled a, a bit from there. And they just kind of like pitched in the cornfield by themselves, which, you know, because they couldn't get into the line. Well, it's a, a interesting. I and mean, you may already know this, Wayne. The... the, the uh, they, they were trying to get into line and, but you know, they didn't know any drill because they were just a few weeks away from home. Mm-hmm. And so Joseph Knipe, the Colonel of 46 Pennsylvania right next to him, uh, was trying to help him out, but then said, you know what, instead of, you're never going to get in line. Why don't you just go uh, attack? And that's what they did. <laughs> they, they actually uh, ended up on the flank of the, uh, the Confederate brigade that was down there. Um, uh, Roswell Ripley's brigade in the mm-hmm. North Carolina. So they, they, they pitched into them. They, that regiment had really heavy casualties too, but, um, uh, you know, ultimately the 128th Pennsylvania had to, had to fall back. Uh, right. Cause he's, you know, North Carolina veterans knew what they were doing. And, um, uh, yeah, that was pretty much the, the end of their day, but, um, they also had a hard day at Chancellorsville actually. I, I was going to say, uh, Neep had a pretty bad day at Chancellorsville too. And he was there. Um, not, not too bright for him there. I mean, of course, it's Chancellorsville, so there's not a lot of bright moments for the Union Army, especially in that sector of the battlefield, um, mm-hmm. specifically on day three. Uh, now, yeah, yeah the, the uh, well, the Twelfth Corps had a lot of like uh, them, and the Third Corps had had a lot of hard fighting on on May third at, at Chancellorsville. Yeah, they so, did. Yeah, pretty interesting. Uh, I want to bring up Mansfield, if that's okay, yeah. <laughs> Joseph Mansfield. So he struck me as a very one of those human interest stories when I started with Antietam. I think he was one of the first court commanders I really like kind of fell into looking into. And I, I didn't I never got really far, of course, because so many other things in the Civil War captured me. And I'm like, we call it like Civil War schizophrenia in my book here, where I'm like, oh, man, I, you know, I want to study some about Mansfield. And then I'll hear about Joseph Hooker. I'll run over to Hooker for a minute and get bogged down with him for a week. But uh, what was it like studying Mansfield? Did you um, come up with anything new, really? Or did you like have a perception change? And really, how do you feel about Joseph Mansfield there? And- right. So um, he one interesting thing about man. So, so I, I didn't get into a lot of his, his like backstory um, too much, but uh, I mean, I, I can kind of run through what he, what he did before, but um, sure. the uh, he, he inspired the, the troops. Uh, I, I will say that. Right. So they, uh, they were mostly uh, uh, across the board, miserable uh, in the campaign. Sure. Um, some of them, not all of them. Uh, had a pretty low opinion of Nathaniel Banks too. Of course, he's gone now mm-hmm. uh, by this point. So Mansfield takes over, um, and you know they had a, 
low opinion of some of their like brigade and division commanders too by that point and um but mansfield shows up and he he kind of almost instantly expires or inspires everybody and um you know uh, williams had some some critical things to say about him but uh, you know i think that was maybe a little bit of you know williams was a little bit uh, i think bitter just generally uh, about you know always getting thrown in an emergency and then kind of pulled back um when somebody else came along but um it's hard to say really how how great he is as a uh, as a corps commander since he you know in battle was for about I don't know, 15 minutes um one thing i did find that, or i kind of sussed out was uh, you know his movements across the battlefield that morning right mm-hmm. so he he shows up basically does a circuit after he goes and he goes forward to the North Woods or just in front of the North Woods, converses with Hooker and then comes back. And now the 12th Corps starts deploying. It's about 7.20. And uh, three regiments go out uh, at the same time. The 10th Maine goes with Mansfield. He, he's maybe over-controlling them. Uh, and he, he gets them over across the Smoketown Road and then cuts them loose. Meanwhile, 125th Pennsylvania is having a real hard time of it trying to deploy under uh, Samuel Crawford and, uh, you know, Mansfield gets to them and basically says, okay, you are floundering. You need to, and he tells Crawford to bring them back. And he, he runs to these two veteran regiments that just were decimated much more than decimated at Cedar mountain. Um, and a little over 200, somewhere between 200, 250 soldiers between the two of these and says, you two get up there. Uh, and so they do that quick swap. Those guys go in and then Mansfield's off toward the North woods where Williams had taken the 124th Pennsylvania. They don't know how to deploy either. And so, you know, Williams is having them uh, deploy along the, the edge of the woods so they can get into line. Um, and, you know, Mansfield got, gets up there, checks on what they're doing. He hears the firing over by the 10th Maine coming to kind of a crescendo. He's mm-hmm. looking over that way with a little bit of concern and he's like, okay, continue what you're doing. And he runs and gets the 128th Pennsylvania brings them forward to the, to the kind of like Northwest portion, the East woods and says, okay, start deploying. That goes kind of as, as I explained a minute ago, that it doesn't go very well. Right. Um, and then, and then he's, he's back to the 10th main. So, and that's where he gets shot. So he does this quick circuit, like a kind of an oval around the uh, Crawford's brigades portion of the battlefield. And uh, it's, like five ten minutes, and he's he's mortally wounded. Yeah, I, I I hope I don't give him the nickname Ten Minute Corps Commander for no reason. You know, I mean, I've always called him yeah. that because I mean he, he is he jumps in the battle and he's he's really it looks like he's vying for a corps commander position very early on too, and he finally gets it, and the minute he gets it, it's out the game for him, man. Yeah, he, he's been it's trying great. for a while. He, I mean, he was put on to engineering duty, building forts, um, which you know, uh, it's a good. job in itself. Yeah, that's a, yeah. that's an incredibly hard job. He did well with it, um, mm-hmm. but. and I'm a fortification guy, so I, I, you know, I really do appreciate the attention to detail that Mansfield spent on a lot of the fortifications. And of course, he gets past, I believe his name is Stone, um, pretty early on in the war too. At least fortifications around DC, um, and uh, when Stone gets that right after uh, Balls Bluff, you know, or it, it may even be before. I'm sitting here trying to mess with my dates. I know Balls Bluff is 61. So he has stones in DC, I think right after, but that is also what prompts, you know, we can go into the, uh, the conduct on war and all that fun stuff. Those congressional committees that get started. Yeah. There's something else. Uh, did you find anything on that? Um, did anybody end up having to testify? Uh, oh, from sure, the 12th yeah. court? I'm sure I would say there's probably no shortage of that. And did you come yeah, across ba- any of those? Banks had to, right. <laughs> um, and yeah. then, uh, I mean, John Pope, um, of course, did, and then yeah, John Pope. Nobody else is coming to mind right now. Okay. But, um, no, um, can I ask? Yeah, you know, what you think of John kind of, Pope what, as that? well. What do you think of John Pope? If I might ask, is that a loaded question there? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, he he did okay at points, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the his intention for Cedar Mountain. You know, didn't quite go. He was hoping to concentrate a bit more, um, although he, he sort of got in his own way with all of the, OK, we're going to attack very much like uh, like he was a French Marshal, you know, World War One. <laughs> He's like, well, we're going to do nothing but attack. And um, it uh, it really 
got in Banks's head, I think, right? Absolutely. Um, but so it, it, once you get out of Cedar Mountain, though, you go back to the along the Rappahannock. He, he was doing sort of okay with the problem he was faced with for the first couple of days, um, and that you know it, it's an episode within the book that um, you know I, I really like. Um, I think it's kind of important and not really covered too much is that August 21st through the 25th period mm -hmm. um, before, you know, they get to the Rappahannock, but before the flank march starts and um, he was doing okay until about the 22nd, 23rd. Um, I say until the 23rd because um, he, he actually had an idea to, to pitch around behind, you know, cross the river. The, uh, the, the freshet that happened late on the 22nd killed that. So he was going to do it on the 23rd. Um, but that's when, uh, you know, Jubal Early gets across the river, gets trapped. And then the, the effort to go after Early is kind of anemic. Um, so that's kind of where things start to go poorly. He could have taken care of that. Um, and then, you know, Early gets back across the river. And then the 25th is just Pope's just kind of casting around for what do I do? He, he, he has his people like extending down back down river when, you know, they know Jackson's marching up river. Um, it, it doesn't really make much sense. And he lets his people waste their whole day marching around kind of in the wrong place. Um, so he sort of has a lost day there. And then, you know, after, um, after that, when they start looking for Jackson, that's when everybody knows about you know, things starting to unravel people not going where they're supposed to and him not keeping track of it. Um, yeah. But he, he's not a, He's not a terrible general, just let things get out of hand. And he had a problem that, that you know, he had some constraints, right? Um, but everybody does. Of course. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he had to maintain contact downriver. That was that was his principal uh, strategic problem to deal with. Okay. Um, one other thing I like to look at, and I mean, you know, you might as well. When we're looking at all these researching processes and we come across a lot of these accounts. Uh, did you get an, a good sense of what camp life was like for the 12th Corps, especially leading up to Antietam? Was that anything that kind of crossed you? I mean, I know there's a lot of focus on the battles, too, but what was it, you know, that you, if you were able to find a bunch of that stuff? Like, what was it like for the day-to-day -day for the 12th Corps? Because I know it varies between the Corps, because, you know, we can talk about, like, the 11th Corps and what it was like with them or what it was like with the first core, what it was like with, you know, second core and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, but did you find anything of note there? Anything interesting that would be worth sharing? Not, not a lot. I mean, mm -hmm. what I will say is um, like before at the beginning of the narrative, uh, it, we talk about their, their movement towards little Washington. And mm -hmm. there's some, there's some accounts about uh, what life was like. Basically everybody was happy and having, they, they were at a, Amistville before they got to Little Washington, and um, they, you know, there are accounts of how the, uh, you know, the, all the regimental bands were, were going uh, like every night, and the, it, was, it was just really pleasant. They had plenty to eat. It wasn't mm -hmm. too hot yet, uh, and uh, everybody was you know, really in good spirits. And then, um, sort of foreshadowing, they they make a wrong turn up to Warrington into the part of the country that they're going to be in. Um, in that that period along the Rappahannock, and then in the week after that, where everything goes badly, and you know they're they're starving and, and overmarched and miserable, and they don't have any supplies or anything, and um, you actually get a, like a little sense of that when they go into Warrenton, and they can see that there's you know the, the country's already stripped. That's before uh, Army of Virginia goes in there and, and is yeah. trying to chase uh, Lee upriver. Did you um, enjoy spending any of the time at these battlefields that you wrote about? Did you get to, you know, do maybe not in-depth tours, but did you get to spend a lot of time at some of these locations? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I've been to Antietam uh, tons of times um, and, you know, I grew up kind of near there. But, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I, I went up there a lot, um, you know, pouring over the topography from different directions and sure. uh, in order to help figure out uh, things that I was seeing in like the you know gold papers. Um, I, I've been to Cedar Mountain a few times too. Uh, Good deal. I was hoping you'd say that Cedar Mountain is an interesting battle to uh, kind of trace. I love the the topography of Cedar Mountain too. And you know, not much has changed with Cedar Mountain. Um, it's very interesting to see um, when you go there. One of the things that struck out to me the most was being able to see Slaughter's Mountain. I, I call it i'm sure you know exactly what i'm talking about when i say that um being able to see that kind of looming over the field by, by the gate and everything it, it's just to me i mean of course there's some you know 
modern day things growing up around there. You got a farm or two and it's a few visual obstructions, but yeah, you know, in theory, it's pretty darn close to what it would have looked like. Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, the, the area that they, they own there, um, is, is basically the woods where that, mm-hmm. the, you know, the hand to hand fighting was taking place. Um, in some of its fields now that, that, um, that area, sure. uh, and then across that road and, you know, you're up there, whether they have their signs mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, silhouette, silhouettes and stuff, um, it kind of drops down, uh, really far there, you know, wheat fields out beyond there, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, would have been. So. Right. And is that, is that privately owned or is that part of that, that wheat field? What, what was the wheat field is, is privately owned, privately owned. Yeah. The, the park property is laying out, like I was saying, it used to all be like the, the woods that, that mm-hmm. where uh, Garnet's brigade was. Okay. <clears throat> Yeah, and you know, um, on our page here, we're actually doing the uh, second Manassas book club thing with the uh, John Hennessy's book, Return to Bull Run. So it's cool that you know you happen to come on. We had this work out the way it did. Cause that something I honestly didn't know a lot about second Manassas, and still don't. Cause I'm still working on you know John's book and reading that, um, and also being able to finally get out to second Manassas. Did you also have some time at second Manassas as well? Or no, or- I've never been to Manassas. I, I really, it's one of those that I'd love to to get to, uh, but. Uh- and I mean, you know, this core is not fighting there either, so it's it's not sure. part of the narrative. But, um, but yeah, it's it's a battlefield I've always been interested in. And that's a it's a good book. Yeah, um, I do encourage it if you get a chance to go out there because it, it's like I said, it's different, especially studying that from you know my perspective. I didn't know much about it, and I felt like I did that because it just you have two really big things happening before that. You have the Seven Days, and then you have Antietam. So it's easy to see why it would get overshadowed. And I think I fell into that trap myself. Of course, you said, you know, the 12th Corps isn't really fighting there. So it's not, you know, part of the narrative, of course. But I still think it's it's in between. So I'd like to, you know, see, especially talking about this, is kind of what it was like at Second Manassas as well. And it's the parts that I've been to are really cool. Um, I saw Bronner Farm and, you know, over by the Dogan House. So it's, it's neat. Uh, it's different. D- definitely different. Going to the Railroad Cut was cool. Yeah, yeah I, I, I need to make it out there. It's... Um... You know, it, it's definitely <laughs> just the, the landscape out there is supposed to be really nice, too. I understand. Yeah, it doesn't have a data center up yet. The, there's the you know, the data center is supposed to be pretty close to that area, which they're trying to put up, which hopefully that won't happen. But fingers crossed there. Uh, so uh, folks watching at home, too, if you guys have any questions at any point and would like to ask anything, please take the time to do so. We have the chat available for you all and we can go ahead and put your comments up here on the stream. So I do encourage that. And I'm sure Chris, you would love to have some stuff too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so anything you want to uh, discuss really about the book as well? Like, is there anything that really, really struck out to you when you were writing this that is worth talking about? Please. Like, I would love to hear more just kind of about the writing process too. Like what, how that went for you and, you know, just kind of going, not too much detail, of course, but just what you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I have anything interesting to say about writing, but, um, I mean, basically, I, you know, I, I kept a massive spreadsheet mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it was broken down by kind of uh, event or portion of a day and uh, and then broken down by unit. And so I, I was typing up. I was, I don't think I'm going to do it this way again, <laughs> actually. So this may be a, a cautionary tale. Okay. But, um, but I, I was I was typing uh, all kinds of source information uh, into it, like kind of verbatim. And then I but it, it was it was nice when it was done because I was go easily go there and like pull stuff out uh, and it was kind of organized but um it took way too long <laughs> so yeah i don't know if i'm gonna do that again no i can only imagine but um let's see as far as interesting stuff to point out about the book i mean there's um uh, i mean it's some some things i sort of discovered that were um to me interesting that were uh, departures from uh you know prior interpretations I had a couple of those that um, maybe I could point out. So like at Cedar Mountain, mm-hmm. you know, there was, um, you know, you've got the wheat field and there's this, uh, you know, some people call it brushy field. I called it the scrub field in the, in the book. And um, it, before um, Gordon's brigade attacks, so I'll just uh, set things up for people. Crawford's brigade attacks into the wheat field. And then, um, you know, they're the ones that kind of, roll up Garnet's brigade and and then uh, continue down the line and cause uh, Tullifer and 
part of Early's brigade to, to kind of uh, break towards the rear temporarily. And um, so they're, they're doing that on their own. Mm -hmm. And um, Gordon's brigade attacks later. But there are six companies from, from Gordon's brigade from the 3rd Wisconsin that are, are forward as, as skirmishers. And um, Crawford came across them before he attacked. Uh, tried to pull them into his attack. Uh, Ruger, the colonel, said, well, you know, I'm under orders from my own brigade commander. Um, and happily enough for, for Crawford, uh, you know, a staffer um, from a, a higher level comes over and brings uh, <laughs> brings those Wisconsin uh, companies for, for uh, Crawford. But what happens is they, uh, you know, Ruger moves off to the right to try to get some some interval, and then he ends up uh, becoming detached from Crawford. So the traditional interpretation was they all went through the wheat field, and um, you know the Stonewall Brigade shows up in this scrub field, and they they come forward, swing right, and then uh, they're on the edge of the wheat field, firing into the Wisconsin guys, uh, and they kind of get. Um, they, they, they get wrecked by this, right? Um, they do come back later and fight with their whole regiment. So uh, what I discovered, though, was that the, the Wisconsin folks actually showed up in the scrub field. And then the Stonewall Brigade is opposite them. They go forward and they have their fight. And then once that's done, it lasts about two or three minutes, mm -hmm. uh, then the, the Stonewall Brigade rolls right, wheels right, and they're on the flank for... The last bit of Crawford's people that are they're coming across, so um, you know, and you know, th this is played out by uh, you know Ruger's um, official report. He had a map that he had in the official report, which didn't get published in the OR, but it's in the archives, and um, and it shows a um, you know slight ridge between the two fields that a couple of accounts had point pointed to, and it it clearly shows. Uh, you know, these third Wisconsin people in, in one field on one side of the ridge, the, um, the 46 Pennsylvania, which is Crawford's right regiment on the other side of this ridge. And it shows the, the enemy regiments, the Confederates, um, in exactly the orientation relative to the third Wisconsin that the, all of the Stonewall Brigade reports describe. So it all kind of lines up. Cool. So anyway, I, I thought that was interesting. No, incredibly so. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I kind of deviate back to Mansfield here. I had a question that popped up on the other Facebook page. For some reason, the comments are not showing up on this thing. I always have this issue with that one page in particular. Uh, but Todd Rhodes on Facebook asked, what was the relationship like between McClellan and Mansfield? So that's a good question. Um, I mean, uh, McClellan loaned him some staffers because he didn't really have any. He had like one. McClellan loaned him one. Um, I don't think it was bad. There's not really a lot of source information about it. What I will say is I think uh, McClellan was happy that he was there because uh, a couple days before Antietam, <clears throat> uh, McClellan was casting about for a replacement for Alpheus Williams, who he didn't like. Um, and he was kind of serious about getting rid of Williams. Um, so um, when Mansfield was already on his way, um, but when he showed up, he immediately went into Williams' spot. Um, so he was temporarily leading the corps uh, at, at the time. The um, it probably didn't help. I'm talking more about Williams and Mansfield here now, but um, <laughs> it probably didn't help that Williams lost the corps on September 15th for for a short mm -hmm. period and um, missed a, a meeting that he was supposed to have with one uh, in Middletown. Uh, but I will say, you know, McClellan was uh, looking for a replacement before that event. And then uh, J.D. Mayo, also on Facebook, we have an influx coming in from the one page that's not working on comments, so I'm trying to copy-paste and put them up here as quick as possible. But I have J.D. Mayo say his third great-grandmother was Luther Early Gaines. She was a first cousin to General Early. Her sister was Jane Early Dickerson. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Early had a an eventful uh, time during during the period of this book, and he, he comes up a lot, actually. Um, so at Cedar Mountain, uh like I like kind of alluded to his uh, half of his uh, brigade gets rolled up and as does the uh, the two brigades to the left of him while that's happening he's downhill 
uh, positioning another brigade and kind of that, that showed up, uh, AP Hill's first brigade that showed up and is putting it in into a good place um, to enfilade some of the Federals. And when he comes back up the hill, he sees, you know, no troops, basically, except for you know, like one of his regiments. There are like two and a half there, but uh, between him and the woods, uh, which are pretty far away. And uh, so he, he's got kind of a situation on his hands and he's sending staffers off to try to bring or, like, collect the regiments and bring them back. He stays with the ones that are there. Um, so that's that's the one thing. Another one is, I mentioned earlier, he, he gets trapped uh, north of the river. So Lee's been looking for a spot to get his army across the free ford uh, during that week of the 21st to the 25th of August and um, not having much luck. On the you know afternoon of the 22nd, they finally find a crossing uh, up at uh, Fauquier, uh, Sulphur Springs, uh, just south of Warrington. And uh, the, you know, Jackson, it's Jackson's core that's up there. Well, Jackson's uh, wing that's up there. And uh, he gets early across the river uh, on a sort of dilapidated dam. And uh, Lawton was supposed to go across too. Only one of his regiments gets across. And, uh, and this rainstorm breaks on, on the valley. And um, basically they get trapped over there. The, the Rappahannock rises really fast. And he's, he's stuck over there for two days. Uh, he's he's lucky to not. Man, he really good use of topography and and the available forces. But uh, and he, you know, he's having the couple, it's like two partial batteries that are with him. He's having them move from spot to spot, uh, sort of a la um, the uh, <laughs> the initial forces down on the peninsula, uh, mm -hmm. But uh, they're they're trying to fool. Uh, so seagulls coming from with his corps from one direction and man or. Uh, uh, Urban McDowell's coming from the other direction, and he's kind of like holding them off, uh, or, you know, stalling long enough to get back across the river. Um, and then, you know, at Antietam, uh, basically um, Jackson's whole uh, uh, corps is uh, <laughs> breaking and, and, and running by, you know, they're spent. They've been doing heavy fighting, and right. uh, everybody except for Early has been engaged. Uh, Early ends up, he has to take over the division. And um, he finds that his brigade's really all that's there, plus another like two, three hundred uh, remnants of Jackson's uh, old division. And mm. um, so he has the 125th Pennsylvania coming from one direction. He's got a couple. Um, he's got Patrick's Marcino Patrick's brigade coming from another direction with uh, another brigade, a Goodrich's brigade from the 12th Corps. He's got some other 12th Corps uh, coming from the northeast, so in three directions. But the 20, 125th Pennsylvania comes behind him. And uh, so he has to go down and deal with that. So he, he's all by himself with all this happening, and he's the only force left. So uh, I went probably kind of long talking about it early, but that, you know. That's he, fine. Uh, no, please. He, he, I, had, a, he had a heavy uh, summer. Yeah. <laughs> Timothy Wilging on Facebook also says, or asks, seems that the most prominent 12th Corps units at Cedar Mountain were the 3rd Wisconsin and 10th Maine. Why was that? Well, um, they, they, they were, uh, I'd say there's some other ones too. Um, mm -hmm. you know, 28th New, or yeah, 20th New York, and basically any of Crawford's brigade uh, are extremely prominent. Um, Third Wisconsin's a big deal, right? Because they, they were the ones that went forward in that, that skirmish battalion. They got chopped up and then went back. And that, that's just a really great story too. I mean, they, they spent two or three minutes against three regiments of the Stonewall Brigade. Uh, of course, it didn't go great, and then um, and real high casualties. They go back, um, like two of the companies go down into this ravine uh, in the woods, and um, they're kind of got well, like it's like two and a half companies. Uh, Ruger eventually brings more men back and joins them, uh, and they all end up with the, uh, the the regiment comes back and goes back up the hill, and this time into the wheat field. Um, to, to the edge of the wheat field and, and fights again there. Um, so they, they had really heavy fighting and there's a good story about one of the captains that's down in that initial detachment uh, in the book. But uh, so that's kind of, you know, why they're sort of prominent. Um, it helps with the 10th Maine because, um, you know, one of their participants did a, a Gould-like effort on uh, Cedar Mountain. 
Mm. It did a lot of like corresponding and stuff. Uh, now those those letters, I, I haven't been able to find them, and uh, nobody else that I know of has found them. But he he tried a similar effort. But that, you know they they're kind of prominent in, in the story for that reason. And they, there's a good story with them too. You know they 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 come out after uh, so Banks held them back basically as a you know to to sit with a a battery, uh, Muhlenberg's battery. Uh, they eventually kind of move away from that battery because, um, <laughs> you know, the, the battery's really getting the worst of the counter battery fire that's going on. And um, and then the battery moves away. And so now they're like this de facto bodyguard for banks. Um, so Crawford's people go in, they come back out, and then uh, things are starting to go badly uh, as Crawford's people are coming out uh, because AP Hill's showing up. And... Uh, Banks takes these like three swings to try to slow things down. One there's Gordon's brigade in, the other one is he sends a tenth man forward, and and then there's a uh, half a uh, regiment of cavalry fires into the, the breach too. Um, not not in that order, but um, so that the tenth main goes in, they go up to this ridge, actually a little bit beyond this ridge in the wheat field. And then they discover all the Confederates that are out in front of them. They, you know, Branch's brigade shows up straight in front of them, and um, the Stonewall brigades way off to the to the right, um, at the edge of that scrub field. And then uh, Archer's brigade ends up showing up in between the two of them. So they, they figure out pretty fast that they're outgunned, and you know that the guys from Crawford's brigade streaming by them are saying, "Yeah, you can't stay here." Uh, you know, this is this is not going to go well. Right. So um, so the colonel takes them back to that that ridge to um, uh, and actually he, he's he, his intent to get all the way back to the wood line so he can have a little bit of protection mm-hmm. and one of bank staffers sees this goes down and it's like you weren't ordered to to you know author, you're not authorized to retreat basically and they have a you know well actually uh, you know the colonel starts to ignore him and continue about his way and um, and then he says well you know they continue arguing over it then after that and um there's some gesticulations that, that make it look like they're they're having a fist fight right out there in the middle of the field, uh, you know, they're under fire the whole time. And the, uh, you know, eventually the, the staffer says, well, you know what, I, I can take command of this regiment if you need me to. Um, and uh, Colonel Beale, George, um, George Beale says, well, you know, I'll stay here. He, he takes them to that ridge line and they, they do their fighting. But, um, it, you know, it's a story like that maybe is why 10th Maine is, yeah. kind of stands out. But you know, in, in my mind, the, the 28th in New York is is really, um, and the other two, right, the 5th Connecticut and 46th Pennsylvania, they're the ones that make that initial charge across the wheat field. They they roll up uh, Garnet's Brigade, um, and uh, and then there's all this really kind of nasty hand-to-hand fighting in the woods. Um, Garnet's Brigade eventually breaks, and then they, they go down and, you know, like I said, roll up another one-and-a-half um, brigade. So I... They should be thought of as as pretty prominent too. But absolutely, I know we were talking a little bit about this before we went live, so I'm really <laughs> eager to hear this. But Todd Rhodes, what is your opinion of Burnside as it relates to his actions at the Stone Bridge? You, you mean like the the lower bridge at Antietam? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, I'll say I haven't studied it too much, but mm-hmm. I, I would I would think that um, he probably could have been a little more energetic a little earlier. Uh, yeah. and that would have helped the overall kind of situation at the battlefield. Uh, so, you know, people talk about, you know, the fords that are available downstream too, and then those are ultimately uh, accessed as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think a little bit more, uh, uh, a little more energy into it would have been good sooner. Sure. But that, that's not the, uh, you know, I, I'm no expert on that, that portion of the battle. No, I mean, myself neither. I'm not really well, well versed on that. Um, another question coming in. Daryl Noonan asked, what fighting were the 8th and 12th U.S. regulars involved in at Cedar Mountain? Yeah, so they were um, uh, part of Prince's, uh, Henry Prince's Brigade, uh, which was the, down the cornfield sector. Mm-hmm. And uh, they went in as skirmishers for the entire division. And they did a really good job. And in fact, you know, Prince was captured right at the end of the battle. And... Um, he uh, he wrote to Augur, uh, who's the division commander, until he was wounded, um, from prison. Uh, I think he was at Libby, um, 
or his other Libby or Bella, I don't remember. But uh, he, he wrote to him from there and, and uh, related how the Confederate captors had were impressed by the, the the regulars performance skirmishing because they had, you know they they were asking if they were regulars actually because they they were doing so well and uh, they were they're doing so well against the artillery that was there that they were forcing the artillery to focus on them instead of uh, you know other targets further afield. Okay, very cool. So yeah, the eighth and twelfth U.S. regulars there, and um, one of the other things that I think I have a question on too when it comes to Cedar Mountain. Uh, what was the the morale like after Cedar Mountain for the Twelfth Corps as a whole? Did, I mean, did it really? Do you think it affected their way up to Antietam? Did it really kind of affect the battle play out for them, or does it sort of, you know, taper off by the time they reach Antietam? Like, do you have any thoughts on that? So I think it tapers off. That's my impression. So let's start from the beginning. of Your question there. That sure they. Uh, it was bad, right? Coming coming out of Cedar Mountain. <laughs> yeah. Um, they, uh, let's see here. Crawford's brigade suffered fifty percent casualties, like forty nine percent casualties. Um, of those involved from Geary's brigade, it was thirty six percent. But the reason I say of those involved is because the twenty the big twenty eighth Pennsylvania was off uh, on another assignment, um, and uh, you know you had in in Crawford's brigade. The number of officers, I mean, they, they didn't have any like company officers left, basically. I mean, they, they, you had a captain running the, the regiment and you had, um, I mean, it was just bad. Um, but a lot of, most people were captured. They consolidated that regiment down into to four companies um, run by corporals and sergeants. So um, most everybody expected that they were going to be um, allowed to, to go home and recruit. Uh, it was that bad, and and Pope actually thought, you know, that they they were not fit to do anything. Um, he kept them out of um, out of the way basically as much as possible, and he, he kept them out of the way at uh, Second Manassas. Um, there was also the problem of how they felt about some of their officers. So, um, you know, at Cedar Mountain, uh, what what I've seen is that. Uh, Samuel Crawford uh, basically gave the order to go and then he mm -hmm. stayed behind in the woods um, there and people already didn't like him too much because you know he had supplanted Dudley Donnelly who was the colonel of the, the 28th New York he had been the brigade commander and then um, you know after first Winchester they uh, you know Banks put Crawford um, in charge of that brigade because he had showed up as like a supernumerary and um, and people didn't like that because, you know, they, they liked Donnelly. Donnelly was mortally wounded at Cedar Mountain. Um, and uh, people just, you know, that and then a lot of other things that happened after that uh, caused people to, to not really like Crawford too much. Um, some, you know, like I mentioned over in the second division, uh, you had a lot of turnover at high ranks as well because you know Augur was killed or not killed. Augur was wounded, taken out of the battle. Prince mm -hmm. was captured. Uh, Geary was wounded. So all both brigade commanders and division commanders were gone. I said both. There's a third brigade um, that was like a regiment and a half at Cedar Mountain. Uh, it grew because the other regiments were gone. They came back, but that was George Sears Green. He ended up taking over the division <clears throat> and. After a lot of additional turnover, the lieutenant colonel from the 28th Pennsylvania, um, Hector Tyndale, uh, took over um, that brigade that was Geary's, the Ohioans in 28th Pennsylvania. Geary, or um, excuse me, Tyndale was hated mm. um, and um, just absolutely reviled. Um, that that evolves uh, <laughs> over the course of Antietam. You'll see that. But... Um, but yeah, so this whole combination of things, and and then what ends up happening is after Cedar Mountain, they go back on the Rappahannock, and once that that period starts from the twentieth until um, until they get back to the forts of DC on September third, uh, they are doing an excessive amount of unnecessary marching, at least appears to them, because they're marching and counter marching, and that like I alluded to earlier on the August twenty fifth, it was like they're they're heading back the way they came from, and it's and they they had dropped their knapsacks um in the wagons on and their tents 
on the 19th of August, and they didn't have that again until they were in Maryland. Um, so they didn't have a change of clothes, they, and they weren't getting food. They went uh, three, four days at a time without any food. Uh, one time the wagons caught up to them, and they, everybody looked starved. Um, mm. And, you know, Confederates dealt with stuff like this, too, uh, from time to time. And uh, in general, they, you know, they had to deal with this kind of thing more often. But, um, you know, and it, it shows kind of the evolution of how things were going, because um, on the 20th, they, or it was either the 20th or 21st, uh, members of the 28th Pennsylvania turned down some, some meat um, that was available because they didn't have salt to go with mm-hmm. it. Um, uh, like a week and a half later, I think they, they were eating a raw cow. Um, you know, they didn't have any salt. Tasty. Either, yeah. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, th- things weren't going too, too well for them. Um, uh, and mm-hmm. you know, they didn't have water uh, a lot of the time. Uh, so, so yeah, they're, they're in pretty poor condition. Now to the second half of your question, they get into Maryland and, um, things pretty much turn around turn around very quickly for them. Uh, you know, McClellan's getting their logistics kind of organized and they're, they're getting the stuff that they need. Uh, they're getting plenty of, you know, additional rations from uh, civilians and uh, things start to look up. Now, w- one other thing that happens is they get a little uh, taste of victory for the first time. Uh, the only the only members of this corps that had ever been through a victory were part of Geary's Brigade, the Ohioans, who had been at Kernstown. Mm-hmm. And in Western Virginia, they, they had a, a, a win there, too. Um, everybody else had nothing but, but losses or they hadn't been in a fight before. Um, and they did not participate in South Mountain. But South Mountain was, you know, we you know, what the Union controlled the battlefield at the end of that. Right. So yeah. um, they got up there and they, they got to see, OK, this is what it's like to, to win a battle. And and. Um, John Meade Gould himself was saying about, you know, for the first time, it felt like I, I know what it's like to have a, a victory and, you know, his spirit turned around immediately. Right. Mm. Oh, Todd has an interesting question. He said, sorry if I missed this. I'm confused by title. 12th Corps didn't exist until after Cedar Mountain. They were the second Corps in the Army of Virginia. And then I think there's a follow up to that as well. Yeah. 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 12th um, Corps. Well, yeah. September. So. It's, it's true. Uh, the original title of the book was Banks Corps from Slaughter's Mountain to the Dunker Church. Um, but uh, and, and the reason for that was because of the um, concern that you raised there. Um, I mean, it, yeah, it's it's true. And uh, I do refer to them as Second Corps Army of Virginia for the first part of the book. Uh, mm-hmm. first half. Um, but uh, yeah. we know them basically as 12th Corps. So, yeah, basically, yeah. That's, that's the reason why we went with it. It was made for a cleaner title i think too that's what what we yeah. what we did but i can't explain all that yeah uh wayne blattner does your book have an order of battle for cedar mountain and a separate order of battle for antietam uh it does and it also has a order of battle for the skirmish at orange courthouse and first brandy station and uh there's a skirmish at beverly ford i, I mm-hmm. put one in for that too and i think Sweet. there's one other one but i can't remember I look forward to looking more into that. That's going to be, and I'm like, just, I'm so excited to actually be able to dive into it again. And I'm a big proponent of having the the physical copy. I love to be able to do the advanced readings and stuff on the, you know, the Kindle. And I think they're great for that, but I'm always just going to be so much more fascinated when I have that hard copy in my hand. As speaking of that, when can our folks expect to get a hard copy? Uh, Quite soon. It, uh, it shipped from the printer yesterday. Oh, really? Yeah, and, and I expect I expect copies will be with uh, Savas Beatty um, tomorrow. Uh, I, I know that if they didn't get there today, I, I know I, I have some copies coming here that are expected to be here tomorrow unless the weather had caused some perturbations there. But, yeah. Yeah. No, so real soon, to um, <laughs> probably within a week, I guess. I bet it's going to feel so rewarding to finally hold. I, have, I mean, this will be the first time you actually hold one of the physical copies, right? Yeah, 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 it's gonna be great. This is exciting, man. Well, we're nearing our hour. Did you have any um, closing thoughts or anything you wanted to finish up with in the show tonight? No, not really. I mean, I, I'm 
Well, thank you and thank everybody for, for joining. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to continue answering questions if there are any more. Sure, yeah, I'm checking all the pages here. It looks like uh, one of the other ones that came in uh, comes from Todd Rose as well. Could McClellan have made better use of Special Orders 191? <laughs> That's a loaded question right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, that is. I think you have Alex Racino coming on. Uh, in, in I do. Time. You want to talk to him about that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think he did better than the traditional, uh, you know, interpretation of, uh, of events. Um, you know, he, he was uh, getting people moving faster than, you know, traditionally interpreted. And I think he did okay. Um, yeah. I think I, I concur. I think he did okay. Yeah. I mean, Susan yeah. Ward it, comes yeah, on too. Sorry. Uh, she asked, what is up next for you? Uh, yeah. So, well, I've started research on a, on a follow-up volume and it's, uh, the, the intent there is to, uh, cover Chancellorsville, uh, Gettysburg. Yes. And then, uh, uh, part of the core goes and, uh, helps out with the draft riots in New York. So, um, you know, actually, I actually didn't know that. That's interesting. They go and help with the draft riots. Yeah, so part of Gordon's brigade. Well, it's not going to be Gordon's brigade anymore. It'll be Ruger's brigade. Um, heads up. So Third Wisconsin, Second Massachusetts. Uh, I think Twenty Seventh Indiana, and there might be others, but I'm not sure. Uh, but the rest of them are staying with the army, and uh, you know, on its way back into Virginia. Uh, and the, you know that stuff will get covered too. So basically, closing out the awesome. Eastern Theater. Um, I expect it to be a little bit longer than this one. Uh, okay. With all that stuff included, and, and like we, you know, we're talking about earlier the uh something that i i just learned here uh today was that a couple of those same regiments were uh, involved in a second brandy station mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so you, big cavalry battle but uh you had a uh, a couple of infantry regiments there anyway and they, they actually uh, contributed very cool and i um another interesting question comes over from twitch actually tasbo says if an average cow could be butchered and cooked adequately, how many men could that feed? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't either. That that was what what I will tell you is Ooh. that um, I know I don't know the number, but uh, they, there's an account of the night before Antietam where um, basically cows were delivered to the regiments, and uh, you know they were they were butchering them, and and I know one of them. Uh, you know they they didn't do the job right and so mm-hmm. the cow was like running around and trying to run people over after that um, oh but yeah but 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 they said that uh, and this was 125th pennsylvania they they said that uh it was a a few cows per regiment of well, very cool. Um, Chris, thank you so much for joining. And uh, folks, if you guys want to check it out, uh, Savage Beatty is the place to buy the book. And you can also get it on Amazon, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yep. Yeah, it's, it's very, very cool. Yeah. Well, I look forward to it. Well, if you won't have anything else left, I'm good to go ahead and go, man. I really appreciate you coming on tonight and uh, providing this. Uh, for most of you guys, folks, if you guys listen to this uh, on Spotify, it'll be up within the next hour or so it just takes a little bit of time to get it edited and thrown up there but it's been very streamlined recently which is awesome so we'll have that up and you can re-listen and recap on what we talked about um and again do we just thank you for being on here and hopefully we can have you back soon to chat some more 12th course stuff sure uh yeah thanks everybody again for for tuning in thanks Tom. yeah absolutely and we got everybody saying interesting talk thank you yeah all right chris take it easy buddy all right take care Huh?